Well, I want to add my welcome to what Jason's already said to you this morning. My name is Ed, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you came out uh, to be a part of this service today because we are starting a new series uh, in the book of Ephesians. And uh, I really have been praying over this book uh, to teach it to you, the opportunity that our team has to talk to you about it because I think it has so much to say uh, to where we are as a church and where we are in our culture. In this letter... Paul writes so much about what we've already sung to you about. He wants to talk to us about who we are and then what he wants us to do. And that's really important to get it in that order. That Paul wants us to understand who you are matters so much in Christ for you to understand who you are. And then once you know who you are, well, then you'll know what to do. Because once you understand what your identity is, then you'll know what God wants you to do, what he's called you to do, and how you go about doing it. Identity is so what we're going to spend at least the next few weeks because it's the first half of this book. Who you are in Jesus, who you are as a follower of Christ, who God has called you to be, and what he has gifted you to be, what he wants you to be. But it's so easy to get that confused. But the Bible starts out right at the beginning, from the very start with who we are. It starts with identity. In the very first chapter, it says he created man in his own image. It's this identity language that begins to run throughout the whole Bible of who we are so that we'll know who we are because once we know who we are, then we know what to do. I mean, how many challenges in our world would be solved if you looked at every other person and you began to start with the thought when you see them, not I don't like what they wear or I don't agree with what they believe, but... That's a full image bearer of God. That person is created in the image of God. That person was stamped with the thumbprint of God. How many challenges that we're facing currently in our world, in our country, could be solved just by everybody understanding the identity, not only of themselves, but of every other human being they lo- that you look at. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter what color they are. It doesn't matter what they smell like. It doesn't matter their uh, political affiliation. It doesn't matter what their country of origin is. Every single human being created in the image of God. And then he goes on to say, in the image of God, he made them male and female. He created them. So from the very beginning, when God makes human beings, he wants us to know who we are. And then in Ephesians, Paul's going to go a long way to talk about this, not just who you are by your being made, but for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus, who we are in Christ. And then in the last part of the book, he'll tell us what we should be doing. And that's really important for everybody to get. I find so often when I talk even to people who've been followers of Christ for a long time that they think that what needs to happen is that what the church is primarily interested in and what we should primarily be teaching you about is behavior. That a lot of people, they wind up bringing their kids to church primarily because what they want for their kids is they want behavior modification. That what the church is primarily about is getting behavior right. If we could just get everybody to act right. But God doesn't start there. It's not behavior first. It's identity first. It's who you are. Because so much of what you wind up doing in your life flows out of what you're telling yourself about yourself, of what other people have told you about yourself, of what you're hearing that you really are. It's identity. Coming to church is not about becoming a better person. That will eventually happen if you decide to follow Jesus. But it's about figuring out 
who you are in Christ and what he made you to be. And so I want to say to people who wind up coming, maybe you're just coming for the first time and you're feeling a lot of weight of something that you've done, that you feel far away from God because of behavior. It's not about coming and getting your behavior straightening out. It's about you figuring out who you really are. And I believe Ephesians can help us do that. So it's why I want to teach it to us over the next uh, few months. And I'd encourage you to get a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, get a Bible. If you don't, you don't know where to get one, come and see me. I'll get you a Bible. But you can also download all the Bibles in the world right on your phone for free. And I can show you how to do that if you don't know how to do that. But I'd love for you to get it and you begin to read through the book of Ephesians with us. It's only six chapters. You can do it every day if you want to so you could really understand it. But the Bible doesn't only talk about it. And the reason I want you to read what the Bible has to say is because the Bible's not the only one talking about identity in our culture. Have you noticed that it's like the primary thing our culture's talking about now? That at the heart of almost everything you hear is about conversations about identity? In fact, I don't want to spin off too far into this and get into things that will get us way off track, but I think it's fair to say that the primary moral value in the United States these days is you just live out who you are. You just be true to yourself. In fact, I hear a lot of people, when people get confused about what they're trying to decide to do, they'll say to people, you just be true to yourself. Just be true to your heart. You just do what you feel is right for you. You just live out your true identity. And of course, you know what that is. Like, it's the primary moral value of our culture. If you encourage somebody to live against what they think is their identity, I mean... Whatever you are, whoever you are, whatever you think is your identity, just be true to you. You just do you. Which on the surface sounds so loving and kind until you get to the question, how do you know who you are? How do you know who you are? And how do you know for sure who you are? Who determined that you were who you said you were? How did that come about in your mind? And how do you know for sure that's your identity. And that's where Paul picks up. He wants everyone to understand you're not just an image bearer of God for people who follow Jesus. You have an identity in him. So he starts in the first verse to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, I wonder if I asked all of you this week, did you feel like you were faithful to Christ Jesus most of the week? I bet many of you'd say, <laughs> uh, not that I want to say in church like I'd be lying. But it's not about what you feel. It's not about that. That's, that's how our culture gets it off. Ephesus is this very large city, and I, I think they felt the very, way, uh, the very same way. They have very little knowledge of God. They only have pagan gods in mind. They don't know about the God of the Bible. They don't know about that they've been made in the image of God. They would never think of God's making human beings in their image. And so they thought their identity was, you just fulfilled whatever you felt. Whatever sensual kind of pleasure you had, whatever kind of feeling you had, whatever thought you had, you just lived that out. And of course, that would be the right thing. And Paul's writing to a group of people who before they'd followed Jesus, they followed the God of, of me. I follow the God of me. I feel whatever feels best to me, whatever makes me happy, whatever will get me ahead, what will ever make my family better. I follow that. And Paul says, no, you're, you're holy. 
And maybe many of them felt at this point when the letter writer, I mean, the reader that Paul had sent to read this letter to them begins, they think they're listening to somebody else's mail. Like, I'm not holy. I mean, you're sure you delivered this to the right place? And I think that happens in the church here all the time. I think some of you have a hard time singing, not because you don't like singing, and not because you don't like the tune, but because you, you can't get the words in your head right. It doesn't feel right to you that you're the son, that you're a daughter of God, that you were chosen, that you're loved with an everlasting love. I mean, you hear the words and you hear people sing it and it looks like somebody believes it, but it doesn't feel like who you are. It feels like a case of mistaken identity. I think the church at Ephesus is dealing with that. And then he describes them and says, this is who you are in Christ. And for the next several weeks, that's where we're going to stay. This phrase, in Christ. It's just this really deep, theologically significant phrase that captures who we are, what Jesus has done for us. And if you understand who you are, well, then you'll know what to do. You'll know what you were called to. And that's what happens in the next few verses. Paul just drives home. You're in Christ. You're in Christ. Nine times you read this phrase. Now, I'm going to read this next section to you, verses 3 through 14, and it sounds like there's a bunch of different sentences because I said 3 through 14, but you need to understand that the next 200 words, Paul writes like I write. There's, it's a run-on sentence. <laughs> and if you ever saw my notes, in fact, people who have to do the work around this, the, the messages, I, my favorite punctuation is ellipse. I just put ellipses after everything. I have just one giant run-on sentence. This is the way Paul originally wrote this. Now later, translators into English, they put in punctuation marks to help us. They're not there. This is the way he wrote it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. And I want you to notice this phrase, how many times it says, in Christ. For he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he's given us freely in the one he loves. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's graces that he's lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. In him, we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything into conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are our possessions, to the praise of his glory. Now, over the coming weeks, we're going to unpack what that means. But today, I just want you to focus on this phrase, in Christ, 
and allow it to show us what our true identity really is. Paul begins this section by saying, if you are in Christ, you are chosen. Do you remember that feeling when you were a kid in PE class and they're picking teams and you're so self-conscious? There's this anxiety while you're waiting for your name to be called. You're waiting to be named. You're waiting to be wanted and waiting to be chosen. And until that happens, there's just this heaviness. But the moment that you hear your name, it all goes away. Now, many of us are living life in that in-between place. We are living our lives waiting to be named, and there's this anxiety and heaviness. And that's why there's this deep self-consciousness in us. So Paul puts that all to rest. He says, you have been chosen, you've been named, and your identity is in Christ. In our culture, identity is something that you choose, but biblically, it's something that you've been given by God. You are chosen. Paul then says that you are now holy and blameless. Now, that may not be what you feel when you look in the mirror, but Paul says that that's our identity. Some of us are living under the weight of blame and shame. Maybe someone else put it on you when you were young and you were made to feel like everything was your fault. And since then, you've always kind of just put that on yourself. Or maybe you put it on you because of something that you've done and you blame yourself. And when you live with that weight of blame, it develops into shame. Shame often shows up as anger. It's why people tell you that you're so defensive or you're so sensitive to criticism because everything reminds you of the blame that you carry around with you. Or you just don't wanna be around other people or you don't wanna be around the people who know that part of your past. And Christ wants to set us free from this, which is why our identity is not based upon something that we do. It's based on something that was done for us. Blame attaches our identity to something that we did. And so Paul says that you are blameless but not because of what you did, but because Jesus is blameless. And in Christ, you are the righteousness of God. And then Paul says, in Christ, you are adopted as a son or a daughter of God. And adoption is a beautiful thing. I'm going to be adopted? <laughs> We love you, sweetheart. We'll always be your parents. I love you so Some of us have waited our whole lives to be loved like that, to be chosen and seen and cared for in that way. In Christ, that is true of you. You are seen and you are cared for. You are loved and chosen. You are adopted and it just changes everything. It changes the identity question from being who am I to whose am I? And Paul says, in Christ, I am redeemed and I'm forgiven. God has purchased me with the blood of Jesus. He has taken what's broken and he turned it for good. And maybe you feel that it's too late for you, that things are too broken for you, but in Christ, everything is possible. You can be redeemed. In Christ, you can be forgiven. 
you can be made new. In Christ, you are chosen and you are adopted. That's who you are. The challenge is, with all of these competing narratives and voices fighting to dominate our lives, who are you going to listen to? Who will you choose to belong to? Well, that, that's the question. So back to Ephesians 1, where God's holy people, Paul says, to them, in Ephesus. And there's this little contrast that gets set up between in Christ and in Ephesus. Am I in my culture? Am I determined by my culture? Or am I in Christ? Am I holy in Christ? Or am I determined by what my culture says is true about me? And for most of the people in Ephesus, it, the, Ephesus was such a different place, it just called them to their culture. And it's been so long for people that we feel like, you know, the culture I'm a part of, what I was, where I come from, says so much about me. It teaches me so much about me. In fact, even when we introduce ourselves, we, uh, you know, this week I had a vacation and I was on a cruise and people would say, where are you from? And I'd say my name and then they'd want to know where you're from. And I'd say, from Georgia. And it's weird to me that people expect that sort of combination, that it's not just me, it's you want to know where I'm from because you think you'll know something about me. In fact, you know, I've lived in Georgia since 1982. There are people in this room that they've been in Georgia their whole life, but it ain't been since 1982. Uh, Y'all too young. But when I tell people now, when I meet people around Coweta County and they say, where are you from? I say, I'm from Georgia. And they say, where were you born? And I go, uh, Mississippi. They look at me like I lied to them. I mean, I left Mississippi as quick as I could. I got out as fast as I could. I've been here since 1982. I'm, I'm from Georgia. But people think somehow that if I, they know where I was born, it tells them something about me. The same is true around the world. When you travel, if you get a passport and you travel anywhere and you say you're an American, it tells people something about you, often more than you want them to know. Uh, often it's not what you think their introduction will be. Uh, we tend to do that with all kinds of things in our lives. We think where we're from, what's happened to us, it shapes us. And that was really true for people in Ephesus. I mean, it's hard for us to get back to it, but this is, Ephesus is on, on the coast of the Mediterranean. It's in a part of the world that we would now call Turkey. It's, it's this huge, thriving metropolis of a city. It had a lot of their, uh, their, their identity was wrapped up in how big their economy was and how they sort of led the world in economic kind of ways. They had the largest library in the world at their time, so their identity is wrapped up in the fact that they lead the world in education and they're smarter than other people. The Temple of Diana is in Ephesus, and it's still considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but you need to know that the Temple of Diana, Diana led the world in, well, sexual practices. I mean, Diana was a sexual god, and so there were temple prostitutes that were around the whole worship in Diana, just pagan worship. So sexuality was a big part of their identity in Ephesus. And so Ephesus 
They had this thing where people were drawn to the city to be a part of that culture. They had one arena in Ephesus, you can still see part of these days, that had 25,000 people plus could sit in this ancient arena. So entertainment was a big part of when you said you were from Ephesus. And a huge shopping center that was the largest in the world. So consumerism became a big part of it. Now it doesn't take too long for you if you want to, you can begin to draw some parallels, can't you? You can see a little bit of comparison between Ephesus culture in being in Ephesus and being, well, being in Georgia, being in the U.S. And so if you're paying attention, there are all kind of other things for us that certainly begin to, to jump out at us as well, that my identity, well, for some of us, it's based in who we are and where we come from and what our name is and what I do for a living. In fact, I just met somebody this morning and I said, what do you do? Because we feel like that tells you something about that. This was true in Ephesus. They put a lot of emphasis on success and what they had achieved and what they were doing in life. And if that's what you get your identity from, and I find this so much with people my age, a little bit older than me, that have already entered into retirement, when your identity is tied up in what you do, when you lose what you do, well, a lot of people don't know what to do. They don't know what to do because our culture has told them you are what you do. And now what do I, how, how do I introduce myself? And so if your identity is based on a promotion that you receive or a degree that you have or a job that you have, what happens when that goes away? Do you begin to question who you are? Some of you even experienced this in the last couple of years when you, you weren't allowed to go into work and people there treat you a certain way and it turned out your spouse didn't treat you the same way. <laughs> it turned out your family didn't look at you quite the same way that people did with respect. Some of us, our, our identity gets tied up in what we acquired. And you feel better because of where you live and what you have and what you drive. And it's all good until you see that somebody else drives something a little nicer or has something a little better. And then you don't feel quite as you as you thought you were. Another group of us in this room, and I, it's what I love about our church is that our church attracts people like people from Ephesus that have been down a pretty rough path. And some of you are wrestling with this. That there are things that you've done and you think everybody can see it. And you think it identifies you. You think it's stamped on you. And you can't get away from the word. And you get ashamed of it. And that's how you begin to identify yourself to, to yourself and to people around you. It's based on something you did. Something that's been done to you, but you can't walk away from you. And another one is certainly big in our day is I identify myself with what I desire. That what I feel, what I want, what I want to do, that my desires, they are defining me. It's been one of the most confusing things for me in trying to help people over the last decade or so with this is that people are just defined by, by urges they have, by desires that they have. And in Ephesus, you, that's what they dealt with. I mean, they, they had prostitution as a part of temple worship. So they're male and female prostitutes that the way you were greeted in worship is, what are you into? What do you want? And they began to think that that was a part of who they were. 
And when you come in and identify yourself, you begin to base your identity on your desires, which has all kinds of challenges attached to it, because I don't know if you all are adult enough yet to admit this, but we are a mixture of desires. I mean, I mean so for example, a, a husband can feel sexual desire for a flirtatious worker, but he also has this deep desire to be faithful to his wife. Both desires exist. Which one's true? Well, our culture would say, just pick the one that's right. Well, you told me what I desired was right. I desire them both. Which one is right? So, you know, for me, I, I desire to take care of myself and eat the way that I should and make the most of the opportunities that God has for what's left in the life of this body. But I also have this deep desire to eat ice cream and cookies all day and watch baseball all the time. Both of those exist in me. To eat healthy and to eat ice cream nonstop. If I wait till I stand outside of Brewster's to determine which one's true of me, I'm eating ice cream. <laughs> you see, because the desire cannot determine who I am. And because of that, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to go too deep in this. But I don't want to move on to it from it too quickly as well because there are a whole bunch of us in this room who you haven't done hard enough work with the desires in your life to know that you have a collection of desires and many of them are in conflict. And you need to decide which of these competing narratives in our culture versus in Christ is true of me? And which one's going to shape my identity? So I've asked Jason to come out and to lead us in a time of prayer and reflection around that idea. I think we can all admit that that's true, what Ed just taught us. It's like we had these competing narratives going on in all of us trying to tell us who we are. And I don't know how that hit you today. Maybe as Ed was speaking, you, you kind of identified with one or more of those things that he was talking about. Or maybe some other idea came to your mind. Maybe there's a label that you thought of that you've been carrying. Fool. Failure. Loser. Sinner. Or maybe it was that feeling of loneliness that you hide that sense of shame you live with or that despair you're in. Maybe you've got a memory, a secret. You've been hiding that. Maybe it was words that someone spoke to you last week, last year, decades ago. What someone said about you, what they did to you. Maybe it's something else entirely, but whatever it is, right now I just want to give the Holy Spirit a moment to speak to you. I want to allow Him to bring out these competing narratives inside of all of us, and I want us to expose those to the healing light. So we're going to 
just give you a, about a minute to just be silent. And in that minute, I want you to invite God to expose those identities within you. And, and I want to tell you, I know this might be uncomfortable for some of you. I, I know it might even feel painful to expose these lies. But I want you to remember, there is no shame. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. None whatsoever. All you will find in him is love. And perfect love, like his, casts out all fear. So we don't have to be afraid to bring our brokenness to God or our failures to God or our hurts before God because we know we're speaking to the one who already knows them fully and has loved us anyway, more than we can imagine. So I want you to come before him with confidence. After we're done with this time of quiet, uh, the band's going to come and they're going to lead us singing the bridge of that song that we learned right at the beginning of our service today to help us combat the lies in our souls with the truth of God that you and I are beloved sons and daughters of God. So you take this next minute or so and ask God to reveal to you the lies that you have been accepting as the truth about who you are.
I want to end, how we want to end this today is with the question, which, which is truer of you? And I know uh, I've already had somebody tell me that grammatically it's better for me to say which is most true, but I like truer, so I'm going to say truer. <laughs> there are things that are true of me. I mean, I already gave you an example. I, I do struggle with what I eat, but I don't want to do damage to my body that when I'm 80 I can't fix because I decided to eat ice cream. But I have to decide at some point. I mean, when two desires are in conflict, I have to ask myself, what is truer of me? And I think so many people in our culture right now, particularly Christians, I, I can't get over that we can't make a distinction between Am I in this culture? Is American my dis is that my identity or is in Christ my identity? I mean, I watched the division that I've had to help family members through over the last honestly half decade now, it seems like, where they're moms and dads and sons and daughters who don't talk to each other anymore because apparently their identity is in. I'm a MAGA Republican and I love AOC. And they may both be followers of Jesus. And I want to say to them, is MAGA your identity more than Jesus? Or are you a son of God? And that person you won't talk to anymore, are they made in the image of God like you or not? And that person that you think it's so wrong because they love Donald Trump and you love AOC and you both love Jesus, which is truer? Which is truer? So let's take this question and, and put over what we, we know about Ephesians chapter 1. So I, I know what I feel like I am. I know what I feel like. Maybe you say... I feel rejected, I feel betrayed, I feel abandoned, I feel alone, I feel, I mean, he left me, he, we promised, and I'm, I'm alone, and maybe that's what you feel, and maybe it's true, maybe you could tell me stories. But you know what's also true? You've been chosen. You are loved with an infinite love. And you have to decide which is truer. Because you're going to be laying in bed at night and the voices, the lies are going to start speaking to you. But God will also be speaking. But God will not scream. Which is truer of you? I speak to some of my friends in the recovery community, and I know you have regrets. I mean, there are things we can do when we get attached to substances that we, we do things we, we didn't want to do, that we, we chose to do. We're not saying we didn't choose it, but we wind up blowing up people and things. And I know you have regrets, and I know you feel like it's who you are. And so you, you finally get the courage to stand up and say, hey, my name's Ed, and I'm an alcoholic, or my name's Ed, and I'm an... I'm an addict, and I know it feels like your identity, but you know what is also true about you? You're redeemed. 
God can change you and he is changing you. You're forgiven. And you got these two things going on in you and you have to decide which one is truer of me. Which one's truer? And if you don't know it, I want to say to you what God says is always truer. Even though it may not be louder. There are a lot of things that are true of you. There are a lot of things that people have said to you that they may be true about you. But there are some things that are true of you. And one of the truest things is who God says you are. That's what's truest about you. That's the truest thing. And that's where we're going to find our identity. The struggle is, if you're listening to this and you sense I mean, something inside of you saying what he says is right, but the moment you, you're gone from here, you know it's going to be gone like that. It's going to be gone like that. And you're going to start to think that your identity is found back in these other kind of things. Almost immediately, you're going to start feeling like your identity is something that you achieve or something that somebody labeled you with, and you're going to start hearing this message that identity is something that you desire rather than somebody who desires you and chose you. You're going to feel that the weight of your identity is based on something you did rather than something Christ did for you on the cross when he gave his life for you. You've got to decide, is it what I did or what he did? Which is truer of me? And so to seal that up as much as we can and help you hold on to it, that what God says is really true, we're going to come to the table of communion and we're going to remember the moment of what God said was true, was put most clearly on display at the cross of Jesus. And so Jason's going to come and lead us through that time this morning.